Welcome to Northgate Bible Chapel Online. Thanks for checking out our podcast, where you can listen to our latest sermons, filled with teaching, encouragement, and hope from God's Word. So whether you're outdoors, in the car, or just poured some coffee, let's dive into today's message. Uh, good morning. It's good to be with all of you this morning. Um, so uh, I think it was a couple weeks ago that, uh, no, yeah, a couple weeks ago, Mike mentioned that for our summer time, uh, normally we spend the year in Romans, or at least we were this past year. We're taking a break for the summer, um, and so we get to enjoy some open topics uh, for the summer. Um, so the message that I'm going to be speaking on today is something that um, was really laid on my heart um, at the beginning of COVID. Um, so it's something that I've really been thinking about um, for a few years now, um, kind of waiting for the Lord to give me an opportunity if that was his will for me to share it. Um, and so we're going to be looking at one of the most well-known people in Scripture today. Um, he's actually so popular, so relevant, that Veggie Tales made an adaptation of it. Um, and uh, so today we're going to talk about King David. Um, now, when I say King David, I am looking for some audience participation on this. So what are, and this is a question for you, it's not rhetorical, what are characteristics, traits, even titles that come to mind when you hear the word or the name King David? And I already gave you one of them, so. Courageous. I didn't have that on my list. That was, wow. I have about eight here, and that wasn't one of them, so. Man after God's own heart. That was number one. Yep. Persistent. Persistent. Good. So courageous, persistent man after God's own heart. What else? Shepherd. Shepherd. Steadfast. Anything else? Leader. Leader. Also on my list. Good. Others? Repentant. Musician. How did I not think of that one? <laughs> That's a great one. Musician. Good. Uh, some other ones I had on there. King, which I already mentioned. It's in the name, King David. Uh, compassionate. We, we see that in the story of Mephibosheth. Uh, loving. Talked about his steadfastness. Godly. Bold. Humble. And the one A.B. mentioned a man after God's own heart. So I want to tell you a story about King David. And when I tell you this story today, I want you to keep some of those characteristics in mind, some of these qualities that come to mind with King David. Right? As soon as you think of King David, you think of him as a leader. You think of him as this example of someone that was after a man after God's own heart. Um, and that was probably his greatest quality. Um, he is the only one that we attribute that recognition to. So the question has to be asked then, if all these qualities are the ones that come to mind, how is it possible then that David can maintain that reputation and yet have committed one of the gravest sins? How can David be known for all these great qualities and yet have fallen in such a public and humiliating way? 
And this is what I want to explore, explore with you today. Um, we're going to be looking at the story of David, Uriah, and Bathsheba. And so often, I think this story becomes a warning to Christians that no matter who you are, no matter how closely you walk with the Lord, you are never safe from temptation. Um, you are never safe from the enemy trying to tear you down. You're not safe from what the world has to offer you. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, right? There's truth that this story is a warning and an encouragement to all of us to keep our guard up. But I think there's so much more here. Because if this story was just a warning, then one of the things that you would have said today is that David was a murderer or that David was an adulterer, or that uh, David was an abuser of his power. But those weren't the qualities that came to mind today. So I really want to explore why. So you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 11. And we really are going to tell a story today. Uh, my plan is to just go verse by verse, looking through this story. And we're really going to break this message up into two parts. The first part is going to be more of a series of questions, all right? These are, in chapter 11, lessons learned in failure. Lessons learned when you fall and you stumble. And so it's really gonna be mostly a series of questions that I have for you today. Questions that I'm not sure I even have an answer to for myself. And maybe you do have an answer to, and, or that the Lord would reveal it to you. The second part of this message, we'll be looking at chapter 12 and looking at what is David's response to his sin and thereby what should our response be to our sin. So let's just commit our time to the Lord and then we'll get into the passage. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning thankful for... Um, just this time where we can spend together looking at your word. Uh, Father, even stories from so long ago that you still have lessons to teach us in, um, reminders for us. Um, and uh, Father, what a blessing it is that as we read this story, uh, we can also be comforted that we have your spirit dwelling within us. What a blessing that is that as part of your gift of salvation, you also gave to us this uh, helper. Um, so, Father, may we just keep that in mind as we read this story. Uh, I would just pray for myself that the words you have me speak would be of you and from you um, and would just bless our ears this morning. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 1. So it says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent, sent Johan and his servants with, or excuse me, Joab, and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. And we're going to stop right there. So if you knew nothing of King David, if you were going to introduce King David for the first time, I don't think verse 1 of chapter 11 is going to be how you would introduce David, right? Uh, if you knew nothing about him, how would you describe him just based off this one verse? Not that we should be quick to judge, but if all you heard about King David is that he sent someone else to command his armies, if you heard that he, uh, instead of going out to war, as was the custom for kings to do, what would, how would you characterize him? How would you characterize him as a person and as a king? Would you think he was lazy, tired, 
Maybe strategic, not putting himself in harm's way. Would he be a bad leader? Would he be exercising poor judgment? And how often do we put ourselves in the same situations? How often might we ignore responsibilities? And we'll see that in verse 2. So it says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Here's a series of questions to start out our time today. Some things to ponder for yourself when you think about your life. What happens when you are not fulfilling your responsibilities and your duties? Now, each one of us have certain responsibilities that have been given to us by the Lord, whether it's as a husband or a wife, a father or a mother, a child, a son or a daughter. But above all, We have responsibilities to fulfill as Christians. Expectations that we should resemble Christ. And how often can we put ourselves in situations where we are ignoring those responsibilities or not fulfilling those duties? And above all, what happens when you think you're safe? When you think the battle and the war is miles away? In truth... The Israelites were facing a great enemy, but David was going to face his greatest enemy yet, right? For David, we know that his greatest enemy and his greatest temptation was his issues with lust. We're going to see that continue down his lineage. And so he believes he's safe. We know that he thinks he's safe because he does what any person does on their day off, spends it on the couch. And so at some point, he feels the need for a stretch, and he goes out to his roof, and this is what he finds. As soon as he finds Bathsheba, he says, uh, And David sent, in verse 3, inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And here we find the core issue uh, that David is going to face. He's setting himself up for failure. I'm not sure if he's committed any sin at this point. He's watching a woman bathing. It's possible that already in this moment he's lusting after her, but he's setting himself up for failure. And he's being purely motivated by curiosity, physical attraction, lust. And when those are your motivators, you're very much in trouble. Curiosity can very easily separate you from the Lord, can very quickly lead you down the path of sin. And so there's a mentality here that David is expressing. It ties curiosity to the flesh. Now, curiosity on its own isn't bad. I think it's actually one of the greatest gifts that the Lord has given us is our innate sense of curiosity. We want to know more. We want to discover more. With that mindset, with that um, inkling towards curiosity is what encourages us to learn more about the Lord. But as soon as the curiosity is tied to the flesh, it's thoughts like, well, I'm just looking into it, or I'm just asking around about it. I'm just going to try it once, maybe twice, but that's it. I have enough self-control to not indulge in it more than I should. And that's when curiosity becomes an issue, right? Curiosity can be one big step away from God. It's that line of thinking we'll see that actually leads David to commit a myriad of sins, not just lust, right? It leads him down this path. And it's because the man after God's own heart, 
the one tribute, the one attribute that sticks out to us, it's because the man after God's own heart got curious about the wrong person. Instead of being curious or focused on the person of God, he was distracted by this beautiful woman. And there's a verse that we know very well that came into mind. And for the sake of time, I would like to go to several different passages, but there's just some verses that I would just like to give to you and you can explore on your own time. And 1 John 2.16, I'm just going to read it quickly. It says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And it's this verse that I think is played out very easily in this story. We will see David express these desires of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life in the story. And perhaps the first one we saw was the pride of life, right? Taking that time, ignoring responsibilities. And then it leads to that desires of the eyes. So, verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house. Now, I just want to pause briefly. Look at the urgency with, Dave, with how David acts. Uh, the person that says that isn't Bathsheba the wife of Uriah, that was David's first warning. That should have been David's first clue to check himself, right? That was the first person that asked him a question. He should have taken the time to reflect. Instead, he acts with more urgency knowing that Uriah was nowhere in the city. Uriah was off fighting in the war that David should have been at. So he acts swiftly, and by no account is there any hesitation from David. He just sees the opportunity to sin and takes it, knowing that there could be no consequences, knowing that there could be no uh, chance that Uriah would catch him. Just another note here, if we look at Bathsheba, Bathsheba is purifying herself according to the law. I think it's interesting that the Bible chooses to mention that. Uh, it's a clear pointer. The takeaway here is that Bathsheba is honorable. Uh, she is following after the law, and what we're going to see unfold in these next two chapters is Bathsheba being treated dishonorably. And this point is going to become even clearer in chapter 12 when Nathan chooses to use a parable to confront David and compares Bathsheba to a young lamb. Speaking of that innocence, right? Speaking of that uh, honorable person. So after uh, she comes to David, it continues on in the story, and it says, And the woman conceived, in verse 5, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Verse 6, so David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Now, in the first four, four verses, we see a very different King David. right? This is not the man that beat Goliath. We see his pride, we see his lust. We see a laziness that has caused dishonest curiosity. And perhaps at a minimum, we see an abuse of his power, demanding and taking Bathsheba. That language there shows someone that is taking advantage and manipulating their power. Now we'll pay attention to the contrast here. And the Bible sets this up very clearly. The difference between Uriah and David in this chapter. Now who is Uriah the Hittite? And I thought this was interesting. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. I didn't when I was first studying this. Uh, is Uriah an enemy of the Lord? Is he an enemy of David's kingdom? Maybe a traitor, an abuser? It's actually quite the opposite. 
Funny enough, Uriah, if you uh, look through, and I don't have the passage written here, but Uriah was actually considered one of David's mighty men. He was an officer in the army of Israel. Uriah was considered a man, and this is a, I don't have the reference here, but you can uh, look it up for yourself. It says, who gave David strong support in his kingdom together with all Israel to make him king. So in many ways, David does owe all the blessings and his kingship to God, but these men also supported him. And yet here David is, a fornicator, and one hoping to persuade Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba. David has betrayed the trust of one of his mighty men, men that would die for their king. And we will see that Uriah does die for his king. So verse 7, when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing. That just makes me uncomfortable, right? David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing. And how the war was going. So practically, compare your relationship to sin with David's actions here in these verses. When you think about yourself having the intention of committing a sin or attempting to hide a sin, you have a tendency to cover it up. You deflect to something more important. You emphasize a good work, an event. You inquire about it. I find it painfully ironic that David is asking Uriah, who he plans on tricking or convincing him to sleep with his wife, about the war when the war is where David should be. David's mind should be centered on the affairs of the war, should be on his people. We should read that verse and see David's heart as a king, right? We should see his genuineness, his authenticity as a king, caring about his people, finding out about the war. That should have been the only reason that he would call Uriah home, is to hear a report on what was happening on the battlefield. Now, it doesn't specify in the text. I would be surprised if David had even thought about the war when he received that message from Bathsheba. Did he even think about the war once, knowing that he had just gotten this woman pregnant? Was it even on his mind until Uriah showed up? So David is expressing a poor pattern and a common pattern that each one of us tends to follow when it comes to our sin. We deflect away from it. We focus on other people. Sometimes we can actually focus on good things. We can actually tend to serve other people. Meanwhile, we have this sin that we're trying to cover up, this sin that we're trying to hide. Selfishly and inwardly, we're either ignoring our sin or we're just trying to hide it. We interact with people in a way that seems genuine. We try to emphasize a common thread or a bond, uh, especially in a conversation when you know you've wronged the other person, when you haven't reconciled with that person. So you just try to be as friendly as possible. Just try to find this common bond. You fail to confront the core problem. You rely on a scapegoat, in this case, the war. And why? Why do we do this? Why does our flesh want us to ignore our sin? It's to help us feel less guilty about the sin. It's to relieve our conscience so that we can stand in front of other people and not feel so uncomfortable. It's to relieve our convictions. We also see David actively trying to force Uriah to go home and sleep with Bathsheba, which would effectively cover David's sin and none would be the wiser. So David's other intention with discussing the war 
is to gauge Uriah's weariness by discussing the war. It leads him into this conversation about how you should go home, you should rest. The whole conversation is devious. So he's using his position of authority that was given, him to, given to him by the Lord to cover up his own sin. A position that mighty men like Uriah risked and sacrificed their lives for David to be king. And I do play that up. I do want to emphasize that point because it's important in this chapter to truly realize how terrible this situation is. This is not just a sin of lust. There's sin of deception and abuse of power. Murder. We've seen this story played out before, not just in Scripture, but in our own lives. You need to be weary of how the enemy can twist the blessings of the Lord, can twist the positions that the Lord has given you. So after this conversation continues on in verse 8, Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go to his house. Like I said before, there's this amazing contrast here between Uriah and David. I was listening to someone uh, speak about this passage, and they said this one little line. They said, a drunk Uriah is behaving more kingly than a sober David. I thought that was fascinating. Because we know that in the moment, David is also not sober, is he? He is not sober-minded. He's not being filled with the Spirit. He's letting the flesh corrupt his mind and his intentions and his actions. But Uriah very much shows the behavior of a king. He's not going to gratify himself. He's not going to allow his needs to be met. He is going to go back to the war... And he's not going to live comfortably until he does, until the war is over. Because he knows that the ark and Israel and his leader Joab and the Lord is there at the war. And that's where he should be. So what does David do? If he can't get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba, what does that leave David with? And you already know the answer, but we'll read it anyways. It says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, also just notice that David's done trying to deceive other people. He's just telling Joab, kill Uriah. 
And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants with David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubaseth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thetzbes? Why did you go so near the wall? And then you shall, then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah heard when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And that's where the chapter ends. And so concludes one of the most treacherous, manipulative, sinful schemes in all of Scripture. We see sins of pride, lust, abuse of power, adultery, and murder. So where do we go from here? What can be learned from David's failure? Number one, don't ignore your responsibilities. The Lord has given you responsibilities. Don't ignore them. Check your heart attitude, number two, and mindset. Are they actually set on things above, or are you becoming curious about the wrong things? This all started with a thought. It all started with David's curiosity. When he went out on the roof, you have to ask yourself, what was he looking for? What was he doing looking at his kingdom? Are you focused on the wrong things? Money, success, relationships, the lives of other people. A couple references from the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 10.12 Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Galatians 6, 7 through 9, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So number, number three, reflect on your sin. How does it manifest itself in your own life. There are practical ways to guard yourself against sin, especially sin that tends to be habitual, sin that tends to make you stumble the most. And then be an example to others, no matter age or status, like Uriah. He was basically being instructed by the king to go down to his house, and he refused because he prioritized his men and the needs that they have and their comfortability over his own. 
So how does our story end? Is there hope? And where is the man that is both king and shepherd? Where is our leader? Where is the man that is remembered for all history as being a man after God's own heart? And this is truly what I think the Lord has been teaching me this whole time, that this story does not just have to be a warning because David does come back from this. And we'll see this in chapter 12. So we're going to read Nathan's confrontation with David. And so the Lord, uh, it says in chapter 12, verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the lamb who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. you got to love verse 7. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king of over, over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and out of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down your eye, the Hittite, with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the children or the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Sorry, I lost my spot. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. And he became sick. Now, there's a couple. Th I don't want to dwell too much on the parable here, but there's a couple interesting points when we read this story. Right? It's basically a retelling of chapter 11, but th almost through God's eyes. Right? How did the Lord see the interaction and the sin of David? Now, either through God's instruction or Nathan's own creativity, the prophet chooses a parable to deliver God's message to David. David, in turn, casts judgment on himself. In hearing the story from another perspective or about other people, he says, this man shall die and shall restore the lamb fourfold. Now, there's a couple interesting points from this parable. Bathsheba, like I mentioned before at the beginning of the message, is compared to a young, innocent lamb. 
And the killing that happens in the story might be a reference to the murder of Uriah and, the, and his death. But I also think that because Bathsheba is being compared to the lamb, it's possible that the parable is pointing to the fact that by David taking Bathsheba in, the, in abuse of his power, he was almost killing Bathsheba's innocence, right? We know that she was purifying herself as well. And the Bible is clear in this, that David manipulated and abused his power and took Bathsheba for himself. Now, David's quick judgment on himself after hearing this parable is a good reminder for us. We will quickly solve the sin issue in other people. We will also be able to identify the consequences of a person's sin, another person's sin, very quickly. Yet how quickly we excuse or ignore our own sin. We can be so ready to cast judgment. We can be so ready to be a servant and to love on someone and to help them and to support them and come alongside them and to uh, assist them in their sin, all the while ignoring the sin in our own life that are hindering us. Now, for the next few minutes, I'm going to talk about David's response. We're going to close out chapter 12. I'm in no way excusing David's actions. We know that they're unexcusable, but we also know that the Lord did forgive him. But David's response to his sin is really the message here. Right? It's not just a warning. It's a practical application for us that when we stumble, as we know we will, what should our response be? Response be? Should it just be a quick repentance, a quick coming before the Lord? Or is there actually a practical application here to look at? So we're going to look at his or, or uh, David's response here in the next few verses. So we're going to start in, in verse 13 and then move onwards. And there's five R's that I thought would help you kind of practically keep this in mind. So the first R that we're going to look at is recognition. Recognition. So when confronting your sin and responding to your sin, the first part is recognition. We see that in verse 13 when uh, David responds and says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, we have to appreciate David here that he didn't try to excuse his actions. He didn't fight back against the parable. He didn't try to lie and say, that wasn't me. He openly admits immediately, I have sinned against the Lord. I think there's something for all of us to learn in that. So the first R is recognition. This is pin uh, a pinnacle of the, of the gospel. Recognition of your sin and who the Lord is. This has always been paramount to the gospel, even before Christ. You need to recognize your sin first and foremost. You also, through that, need to understand who the Lord is. How can you possibly recognize how depraved you are, how terrible your sin is, without also comparing it to the most holy thing there is, the person of the Lord? So you also need to know who the Lord is. As a creator, as someone that designed you for his glory, you have sinned against him. And then through that, you see your need for a savior. So then we read in 16 through 18, it says, David, after the child became sick, David therefore sought God 
on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not. Nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. So the second R that I would like to submit to you is repentance. There is a period of going before the throne and falling on your face before the Lord. And I would also submit to you that before there are three more steps. There are, I hate to use the word steps, right? But uh, three more steps. I don't have a better word for it. If you think of one, let me know. Um, there's three more steps to come, three more R's to come, but I just want to make an observation. I feel like we stop right there. We're going to see that David continues on, and we're going to observe more of his actions, but so quickly we can recognize our sin and repent from it and then move on. But is that full repentance? Does it just stop there? How can we have a full turning away if we simply ask for forgiveness and move on our merry way? Especially with sin that can be habitual, sin that so easily ensnares us. I think one of the reasons that it becomes so habitual is because there's not a full turning away. And that's what we're going to see in this passage is that there's more to come. We're going to look at some of David's actions here. Are we actually asking for forgiveness, though? Or are we confessing our sins in a manner that does not truly recognize Christ's death on the cross and the Lord who sits on the throne? Are we fully repenting? And we're going to see this here, starting in verse 19. So when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Verse 20, Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when they asked, they set food, or when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. This is the third R. Restoration. Restoration. Once David has gone before the throne and he receives his punishment, the child has died, David washes himself, anoints himself, changes his clothes, and goes into the house of the Lord and worships. There is a restorative process that should occur after our sins have been committed. If we go through a period of recognition, repentance, it's natural to assume that would lead us to a place of worship. If you look at the examples of worship throughout Scripture, in particular, if my father was here, he would point to Nehemiah, that it was only through the confession of their sins, after reading the word of the Lord, reading the law of their God, that it led them to worshiping their God. So when we confess, it should lead us by recognizing who the Lord is and repenting from our sins should lead us to this place of worship. And through worship, there is a natural restoration. 
In Ephesians 4, just read two verses. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. To put off yourself, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In the pursuit of holiness, which is God's will for our life, is to pursue holiness, we should set ourselves apart and go through this restorative process. We'll continue reading. 21, then his servant said to him, what is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. David said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. This is my fourth R, reconciliation. This is probably the number one step that we struggle with the most, reconciliation. David admits in that first step that he has sinned against the Lord. But there is also a call for all of us, in particular Christians, when we want to exemplify Christ, that we want to reconcile with anyone that you wronged or set a bad example for. David admits that he sinned against the Lord, but he doesn't ignore Bathsheba. He doesn't outcast her. He doesn't send her away. Instead, he comforts her. And we have a responsibility to ask forgiveness from both believers and non-believers for sin that we committed, either against them and or setting a bad example for them. And then the last R that we don't really see played out necessarily in this chapter is respond. So once you go through these steps of recognition, repentance, restoration, reconciliation, you are now fit to serve the Lord, and you should be ready for your response. It makes me think of Isaiah 6, when he's standing before the throne and he's touched by the coal and his sins are wiped clean and he's cleansed, when the Lord asks, whom shall I send? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And that should be our response when you go through that process. But you want to go through it. You want to be restored by the Lord. You want to be ready to be used by him. You want to be in a position with other people that you fellowship with and interact with that you can go serve the Lord and be free from any unresolved conflict or issues that hold you back. And this is why we love David. Because the story is not just a warning, like I said, to someone who drops their guard, someone that ignores their responsibilities. It's not just a warning. Rather, it's a reminder that when you stumble and fall, as we know you will, you must go through a restorative process. David is a man after God's own heart, not because he never sinned, but because when he did he submitted himself to the Lord, and he actually understood what the Lord wanted from his creation. 
Now, we can't be blind to the rest of 2 Samuel. We know the consequences of David's sin that are to follow. We know how Solomon continues to struggle with, the sim- with similar sin, as well as um, other uh, children of David. And his kingdom did suffer because of it. We can't be blind to the fact that there will be consequences to our sin. Yes, the Lord will forgive you if you repent fully of your sin, but there will be consequences to that sin. But what David knew and understood more than anyone was submission to the will of the Lord. That even in failure, repentance, forgiveness, and restoration can follow. And I think it's only natural, and this is my, uh, this is, I'm going to be done soon. Um, I think it's only natural that we close with Psalm 51. So take a few uh, seconds, turn over to Psalm 51. This was the psalm that David wrote when, uh, following Nathan's confrontation, possibly even when he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped, or even prior to that, laying on the floor. It's unclear when he might have uh, written this, but I think it really captures what David understood about the Lord and why he's considered a man after God's own heart. Before we read, if I could just submit uh, one question for you to just think about this week, something that I had in my mind, more of a what-if question to think about um, as you leave. Uh, What do you think would have happened if Jonathan was still alive? It was just something that I thought about. We know that Jonathan and David had this brotherly affection for one another, a close relationship. Uh, It just made me consider that even when David's kids go through this similar sin, what would have happened if Uncle Jonathan was there when this was occurring? And it just spoke to me about the importance of of community and accountability. In this passage, David, aside from his servants, is isolated and alone. Just something to consider this week. So Psalm chapter 51, this is where we'll close. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. 
O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you. Um, Father, as I, as I think here now, um, Father, I, uh, we just thank you um, for preparing our hearts and minds. We started this morning uh, with this uh, thoughts of joy and the joy that your um, son gives us through his sacrifice. And Father, we see this here now in our last passage as well. Father, what joy it is to be in your presence. Um, and Father, our heart desire is that we would follow after you and that when we stumble, that we would go through a restorative process, that we would not just repent, but that repentance would lead us to worship you in our hearts and minds and soul, uh, that we would love you, that we would deal with any unresolved conflict or issues with brothers and sisters or non-believers that we interact with, that we would reconcile with those people, and then above all, Father, that we would be willing and ready to serve you, and that we would uh, put our arms out and say, here am I, send me. But Father, we know that you need to prepare us first, that there is a preparation and a process by which you uh, make us ready to do your will and your work. So Father, may we go through that process uh, with uh, uh, open mind and just ready for you to do the work in us. Uh, Father, we submit this all to you in your son's name. Amen. Amen.